Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm. I am a reporter here at TC and I am joined by my favorite people on the entire planet. I have Danny Crichton here. Danny, how are you? I'm great. I'm looking forward to talking about Luck and Coffee, Lemonade, and many other drink-named companies. Yeah, it's going to be kind of a beverage-focused day, if you will, which is good because we have all three of us to kind of slurp through it together. Now, we also have Natasha. Natasha, how are you doing? I'm slightly worried about the future of our democracy, so same old, same old. (laughs) That and a coronavirus all-time high peak yesterday, and we're doing great. It's a lovely day to be in America. And if you're international and didn't get that, we're being sarcastic and sad. Let's talk about some stuff that is a bit more in our wheelhouse. Did you guys keep tabs on the stock market today? I'm very curious if you've been watching the stocks. Danny? When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Or in the case of Goldman Sachs, you take lemonade, sell it as lemons, when you could have actually sold it for about 140% more in value on the public exchange. So let's back into that, because that was actually a very, very witty uh, segue there. So Danny gets four points, and we won't whack him after the show like we usually do. Uh, <laughs> this week, there were a couple of IPOs. Uh, Lemonade is one of them. Lemonade is a SoftBank-backed uh, kind of new insurance company that focuses on rental and homeowner insurance. Also out was a company called Accolade, which is backed by a number of other VCs, but no one paid any attention to it because Lemonade was much more interesting. Uh, we have many posts up on TechCrunch.com about these, so feel free to peruse. But the story that really took off today was after relatively aggressive pricing from each company, they have exploded out of the gate. Danny, what's the latest on Lemonade stock price? Where are we at? I think uh, as we record the show, the, sh- the stock is up 138% from its Ooh. debut price this morning. That's a, it's a nice return for five hours worth of work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the the usual statement here when a company trades up so high is that uh, it was mispriced by its banking group and they left a lot of money on the table. This has been the standard uh, Bill Gurley perspective. And and not to say Bill Gurley is the only person saying this, he's just been the loudest voice about it. And so he tends to be kind of the the standard bearer for the argument and the idea that IPOs are automatically mispriced. Yeah, I I, I don't really agree with it, if I'm totally honest. But before we jump into that, is anyone surprised by the market's excitement about Lemonade and its numbers and its health as a business? I feel like we need a win even if we're confused by the win like i read your story this morning saw that it was doing well i know that the public market doesn't really reflect the private market but i still will take it as good news for the seed stage startups that i report on so that was like my my read on it yeah there's a lot of companies in the insurance space that are raising money and and for for root for metro mile for next for kin for hippo for the other one, I always forget the name of it. There's a number of companies that were watching this, and I know this because I spoke to uh, three or four of the CEOs of those companies, mostly on background, so they could actually riff about this debut. And, you know, catching the sentiment writ large, averaging it out, people were hoping that Lemonade would do well, unsurprisingly, because it would reprice them in a good way in the private markets. I don't think anyone expected this, though. I mean, this is a level of return that's nearly shocking. I think I think the big challenge here has been how do you evaluate Lemonade's business model, right? Because it is an insured tech product. It has insurance tech economics. But I think for a lot of investors and a lot of uh, analysts, they look at it as a SaaS product. And I think yeah. there's a little bit of time that's going to take to settle you know, the, the different views of like, do you evaluate revenue in a SaaS metric where it's like 30x? Mm-hmm. Right now, the top end of the range before it was priced, the insure tech revenue multiple is 15x, which is way beyond any other sort of comp in the insure tech space. And so to my mind, there's going to be a little bit more settling time compared to most SaaS companies where, you know, there's a little bit more complexity here. It'll take time for the analysts to sort of understand this particular business model versus others. My, my, my take, and I've said this before on the show, is, is amazing for, I think, what was it, a five or six-year-old company 
to go to IPO so quickly, have a little bit of, a, you know, it was an up round, then it was a down round, and now it's like a out of the gate, like beast out of hell. And, you know, at least from that perspective, it's really nice to see companies actually just go from like founding to IPO in, in a 1990s time frame. Yeah. So a couple of notes. I, right before the show, I spoke with the CEO of Lemonade and my call recorder failed. So I do not, we were going to put some audio into the show today or Monday. We can't because no one can make an iOS call recorder that functions. I don't know why. Please build that. Send it to us. We will give you at least $50 for it because that's all the money we have. On the point that Danny just made about the valuation point and how to price it, uh, the CEO told me that he had kind of two different camps of people that he was talking to on the roadshow, analysts who were insurance and analysts who were tech. Tech okay. people got all the LTV to CAC ratios, but they did not get the you know loss ratios and loss adjustment expenses. And on the insurance side, they got that. They didn't know what LTV to CAC was. And so he was constantly kind of going back and forth, trying to figure this thing out and how to explain to people. And he says they, they got it down to a science and it was fine. But it, it did take a minute to kind of get over that particular point. And then on, on the pricing point that we started off with, I, I asked him at the end of the call, I'm like, look, you guys, I'm seeing tweets about this already. Did you misprice the IPO? Do you care about the first day pop? What do you think? And he, he said, you know, we locked in some really, really solid investors, people that he was very excited about. And he said, that's not hyperbole. We got great long-term holders for the stock. We didn't even need the cash. We had tons of money, but we're going public because we want to become a public company. We want to be in the spotlight. And he used an analogy between a country road, which is easy and soft and you're by yourself, and a highway, which there's big trucks and there's more police and that's the public markets. And he said, I told my team, I want to go far. And so we're going to get on the public, we're going to get on the highway, we're going to go for it, even though we're younger than most IPOs, even though we already had the cash, even though it's hard to explain, we're going to go out. And to be totally honest, great explanation, loved it. And they have a bazillion dollars now because their IPO price is 29, not 23. And so I'm fascinated by what happens next, but that's, sorry for the long paragraph, that was some of the notes in the combo. It was a great chat. That's no, that's really refreshing to hear and fascinating that he was like pretty upfront about it. I also wonder if this is going to inspire because I feel like the general conversation has been like every company staying private for longer now. And I wonder if Lemonade's success in any way is going to shorten that time period. And when I heard six years, I actually didn't know that it was just six years. So I'm pretty shocked. Um, and it feels really separate from the general conversation I hear from seed stage startup founders that have been told that private is sexy now. <laughs> I feel like that was a talking point back in like 2013, you know, like, I mean, haven't we gotten past the idea yet that it's always good to be private? I think WeWork is a good example of why going public is helpful and it creates a nice bit of light in the business. But speaking about companies that uh, have talked about going public and haven't done it yet, ladies and gentlemen, how do we feel about the latest thing between Postmates and our good friends over at Uber? Natasha, you're shaking your head. What's your so sentiment? The New York Times broke this news, I think at 6 p.m. on Monday or Tuesday, and I have not been caught up for it too much, but I covered the story for TC. So I was catching up through all the clips and just going through Postmates' back and forth between going public and not was a whole conversation in itself. Uber recently lost out on the Grubhub deal to Just Eat Takeaway. And that was their you know big Uber Eats, Grubhub potential antitrust problem issue. And now a Weeks later, they're offering to buy Postmates, allegedly, for a rumored amount of $2.6 So it was a head scratcher. It, it was just a lot of things, and it felt like a storm, in a way, covering it. If you go back in time to Postmates filing to go public back in, I, oh gosh, I want to say February 2019, it was roughly around that time frame because the IPO, the one-year private IPO period kind of expired, and they didn't go public. But they are now making noise again about going public, and there's the Uber deal in the offing. And so the question now becomes, are they dual-tracking? Are they using the IPO as a lever to get a higher price? Is DoorDash going to come in and try to take a bite out of this deal? Or will they just let 
Uber Eats get it and then add that volume to the Uber Eats business. It feels less strategic as a deal to me than Grubhub, given that Postmates has smaller national market share. It feels like a consolation prize, not to diss Postmates. It's been a long project. Bosti's a fine person. I know people that work there. But you know, compared to the size of, uh, of, of Grubhub, it's, it's more modest. Danny, from a strat perspective, do you think Uber's making a good move here? Or is this more of like, a, well, we'll get something if we can't get that? I think, you know, there's consolidation across food delivery all around the world, right? And I don't think the United States is unique. You know, I think they're evaluating it city by city, right? So Uber Eats is strong in some cities. Grubhub is very strong in New York, but less strong elsewhere. Postmates, I don't even know where they're strong in. But, you know, to me, this is really just down to finance. It's it's really not a strategy point of view. Like, to me, there are way too many delivery companies competing for the exact same customers. There's really high marketing costs. And this is a business that makes sense. Not maybe as a monopoly, but like as a duopoly, you can kind of see how most restaurants could survive the two ordering systems. I mean, I don't know what your experience is in SF, but here in New York, like some of these restaurants have eight iPads with their whole infrastructure and cords trying to like get all the ordering systems together. And like, look, it's a terrible experience. So to my mind, there is inevitably going to be concentration. I think Uber is trying to walk around. It sounds like Postmates might be IPOing or might not be IPOing. We don't really know. My sense is it's all up in the air, right? Everyone's trying to figure out where they stand, who they want to link up with, what's the best value, how can they maximize it? What's crazy to me is it's all going to happen right away. Like to me, this is done. Like this is happening the next three months. We're going to see, you know, the consolidation down to, you know, one or two players. And then there's going to be a couple of these food pandas we've talked about in the past on the show, kind of more specialty, you know, belly and a couple of these other more, you know, specialty delivery services. But um, for the big guys, this is it. Like the 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 dies are cast. Yeah, part of me really wants Postmates to go public because I'm so curious about their S1, and then like reverse into being bought by Uber completely. Like that is the ideal scenario. Don't even know if that's possible, but I want that to happen. Never have I loved you more than in this moment. That is exactly <laughs> how I feel. Please I've worked drop... with you for two years, so this is what happens next. <laughs> drop, drop the S1 and then sell the Uber the next day. I don't care. I just want to see it, and I don't want to see it blended into Uber's numbers which are much larger and therefore yeah, it's gonna get boo. lost in the mix boo we or at least leak us the the old s1 after after it sells <laughs> someone you know it won't hurt we'll even take the 2019 numbers it's fine but for, for I all just... you know for all you know they tried to to put the s1 in they put it on a they ordered it on on postmates oh it's still God. in transit it's taking a couple of weeks uh it'll be cold by the time it'll be lukewarm uh but it'll arrive and maybe it'll pop 10 percent. it'll still get here faster than an amazon package lately so like oh i mean uh, we've been home a lot. We've been ordering many things. I get all my most of my books through the mail, and so it's yeah. Well, well, talking about talking about being at home all the time. I mean, one thing that was a big news story this week was actually a home fitness startup that actually raised a good chunk of cash, but was a huge, huge return. So a Mirror, which uh, my understanding is, it is literally a mirror, but it's basically a display to be able to kind of uh, how do I want to say work out with other folks using hardware that was not Peloton, sold to Lululemon for $500 million. And the company had raised about $75 million in total and was last valued at $300 million. So a nice uptick from the last round's valuation, but most importantly, a $500 million exit on $75 million of capital in is actually kind of an amazing return. We haven't seen one of these, I think, in some time, like a 6, 7x. And uh, the major investors were 0.72 Ventures, which was formerly uh, SAC Capital, Spark Capital, First Round Capital, Lair Hippo, Box Group, Carly Kloss, and um, uh, Kevin Huvain of Creative Agency. So a huge list of East Coast and New York investors. A nice win for the space. And obviously perfectly well-timed given the dynamics in the market today. Totally. I was like amped about the fact that apparently it came out of stealth at TC Disrupt. We had to plug that in. 
But I think that's so cool. And I think that this is another example of something that maybe we would have laughed at a year ago, but is like genuinely the future now. I literally just like spent time with it yesterday, looking at all the previous coverage and being like, I would love this. I would love this. I think we all agree now there's a huge market for bourgeoisie at-home fitness equipment, and it's larger than it was in our parents' generation when they would all buy a Nordic track and then leave it in the basement and never touch it. Like, first of all, people that seem to be more fitness-oriented will tend to work out more at home. And the Peloton boom and now the Mirror sale, I think, are pretty good indicators that this is here to stay. This is not going to blow away. Mirror was founded in 2016. It's a roughly what's called four-year-old company. Again, another really quick exit, very nice return. And um, you know, talking about the bourgeoisie, you know, uh, if you compare this to Equinox or any sort of premium gym chain, Equinox is, uh, you know, depending on where you are, about 175 a month, that's $2,100 a year. And so if you're a Peloton, if you're any of these sorts of places and you're going to have this hardware for two, three years, like a Peloton is roughly the price of an upscale iPhone these days. An iPhone was like a, like a product case. And, you know, I think Mirror's in the same sort of category. So I, I actually think this market has a huge tab. It's actually still really early. I actually think there's going to be a ton of other products in this market over the next couple of years as more and more people look for ways to work out at home. I agree. I, I feel like Peloton maybe once was thought of as a one-off, but definitely no longer. I, I'm, in, I'm excited by the fact that there could be more than one winner. I was looking at an article about Tonal, which is another kind of in-home exercise experience. And the, the CEO kind of said that a lot of Tonal users also own a Peloton bike. And it just reminded me that like this idea of cult followings in um, like exist in this market and like are such a benefit for, for the hardware in this market. And there's going to be a good sales cycle because the, and the pandemic's not going away. We don't get to leave our house. We're going to be home for another year. So, you know, this boom is not going to be a short Q, Q, Q1, Q2 boom. It's going to be through next year. So I can kind of see buying this. 500 almost feels cheap in this context. Absolutely. And look, we talk about the top of the market with Peloton and Mirror and some of these others. But, you know, on the other side of the market, Ring Fit Adventure, uh, which I got recently in the mail with my Nintendo Switch is not nearly the same price and is just as fun attacking monsters using a, a fitness device. So depending on your persuasion, what you're looking for in a class, I just think that there's going to be a huge array of different options for folks as people become more aware of their health. I mean, as a secondary order, you know, a second order effect of, of COVID, it's not just, hey, we're stuck inside and we're isolated. I think there is a more sensitivity to the fact of like general health and wellness is important to our lives uh, going forward. And I, I expect to see continued spending on, on these sorts of categories. Before we move on, can we talk about the proletarian ring fitness extreme that you just mentioned? One, what's it called? And two, what does it do? It's, it's the ring fit adventure. I'm and sorry, I was it, close. it connects to a Nintendo Switch and you use this uh, Switch controllers to attach onto a ring and then a, a thigh holder. So it, it can actually follow your movements um, right from the Nintendo Switch. And then they have a bunch of, I would call it mini games, but you basically run in your own home and place and you're dodging monsters and fighting crates and shooting things. And you like... Huh. The, the ring itself is high tension, so it requires effort to actually close it off or expand it. And so you get a workout right from your video game console. Well, now I feel dumb for making fun of it. That's awesome. It's an RPG, yeah. so you that's have to so com- compete with the dragon that's trying to take over the universe and make milkshakes to compete. Um, Dang it. So it's, it's uh, again, it's, I, I think you're going to see so many of these different point solutions. You want a storyline, you want an RPG, you want seriousness, you want, I don't know, sexy people as, as gym instructors. You're going to have the whole shebang. 
Yeah. Before we move on, there, my friend had this big arcade game in his basement growing up, and you were like on this little bike, and you had to pedal it, and then you'd fly around this virtual world and like go through little hoops and collect stuff, and there's missions, and it was like the most amazing way to exercise. <laughs> this is back from like the 90s. Whatever that game was, we should just bring that back, and that would be a huge hit because all, all of us nerds would love it. Need Josh, it. Last, last over to you on this one. I was going to say, well, one, just the fact that we've tried moving on but can't from this topic shows how much excitement <laughs> there is. And um, well, We're all fitness nerds here. so We there you all go. obviously I've are. I've got a push-up. <laughs> once for me at least but um i was just gonna say that my, my my takeaway is that like the consumer habits that are changing right now are should not be like just memed as quarantine habits only because that's that's kind of what i'm seeing right now is like a lot of things are staying and gonna not just impact the present but the future but that's, that's my last a, thing that's what jeff jeff richard and hans tongue said on extra grunge live this week about these changes i was talking about education in particular I'm basically a millionaire uh, well, and Tosh, we have one other. Uh, VC. Here it is. <laughs> we have one other note, real quick, on the on the fitness world. So, Summit Partners, on a quick note, raised two point two billion across two funds in the growth equity stage in North America and in Europe, about half and half each. And they also hired uh, Melanie Whalen, who was formerly the CEO of SoulCycle. You know, this sort of cultish. Ah. I called it semi-cultish. I don't know. Is it a cult? It's, it's kind cult. Of a cult. It's a cult. It's a cult. <laughs> We're declaring it a cult. Who who led the company? She was COO from twenty twelve to twenty fifteen when she became CEO led the company on to an attempt to get to the public markets in 2018, yes. which was eventually pulled for a variety of economic reasons and market conditions. She ended up leaving the company, becoming an EIR at Summit. And now she's going to be doubling down on consumer investments, which is unusual for Summit. Summit mostly invests in enterprise growth deals. And so it's going to be interesting to see a fitness expert. Before she was at SoulCycle, she was the head of BD at Equinox. So who has a lifelong passion for fitness and consumer products. Um, investing at the growth equity stage. So again, I think you're going to see more and more of this sort of fitness DNA coming out uh, in the consumer side. Okay, now we are going to move on and we're going to move into a very Danny topic. So if you were enjoying that fitness round and didn't want to talk about R&D tax credits, Danny Crichton at twitter.com. All right, Danny, take it away. <laughs> at at twitter.com. I feel bad for the Danny Crichton at Twitter who <laughs> is about to get all of your hate mail. Uh, I'm sorry, twitter.com slash um, Danny So we're, we're going to get to the most fun part of the show, which is a discussion of IRX, IRS tax credits uh, for startups. But the good news is it's free money and everyone loves free money. So we've already talked about PPP loans, a bunch of other programs. Two weeks ago, I wrote about a startup called Main Street, which was helping you get local economic development credits. They were the ones, for those who remember in the Bay Area last year, who sponsored a contest that said that if you got up and moved from the Bay Area to somewhere else, they would hand you $10,000 to live basically anywhere but the Bay Area. And so this week, we got a new uh, funding round, uh, $3 million led by Annie McLaughlin at uh, Uncork Capital and Mike Mavels at Floodgate for a company called Neo.Tax. And what they are, they're a bunch of AI folks out of Stanford um, who are looking to automate the process of doing taxes. And their first kind of beachhead is in R&D tax credits. For those who don't know, any startup basically that builds software or any sort of uh, system that is reusable, so software, hardware, basically systems that are, uh, it's considered a capital investment, right? So you're not building a widget, you're actually building software that's reusable, that's considered R&D. You can actually get about a quarter million dollars refunded on your taxes every year from the federal government, which is really nice as a startup. And the founders here are basically trying to automate that as much as possible with the long-term goal of competing with Pilot which I think we've talked about probably a year or two ago. They actually haven't had a funding round announced in two years, which means they've raised and they haven't announced, almost certainly. But they're in this sort of automated bookkeeping space, which is a pretty popular company in the enterprise financial accounting stack. And it was founded by uh, Firas Abuzaid from Stanford. So we have another Stanford-backed startup. But I mean, at the same time, his uh, background was in ML. So it kind of makes sense that he'd be working on this. I like it, frankly. 
I think startups are really bad at accounting. And so it's fantastic. There's gonna be tools to help them suck less. And if they can get a bunch of money that extends their runway, honestly, I dig it. And uh, I think neo.tax is actually a really great URL. I really dig that. You like the dot tax URL? I, I do. I just like the word Neo. We use it all the time. Neo banking, Neo insurance. Neo makes me feel like I'm fancy and from the matrix. So I dig it whenever it comes up. What? I'm a nerd. <laughs> don't don't roll your eyes at me. There's all the fintech X.0s, but it seems like overall, generally, there's just been a big push on like getting the infrastructure of fintech as like where the seed stage startups are coming versus build the tools to first get it. So in this case, like they're making it easier to do something versus making, helping them do it in general. And to me, that is like a step forward. Well, I have another funding round actually coming out on Monday, um, talking in the same category. So I can't talk about it yet, but it will be on there on Monday. Um, but I do think exactly, Natasha, like I think FinTech 2.0, but it's basically automating a ton of these terrible, terrible systems. I mean, finance and the CFO function really hasn't changed. I mean, even today, you know, here at TechCrunch, we're still filling out receipts and uploading pictures of receipts to the internet and, and getting an auto report from some unknown person who's like, you have a expense a fifty dollar and four cent expense on a line item that only allows fifty bucks. You must immediately remit four cents in payment from you know your account to to the company immediately in order to make this all work. And you're like, uh, my time hopefully is worth more than four cents for twenty five minutes in order to handle this whole situation. So I think you're seeing a bunch of these companies trying to automate use AI, and I, I think the AI is getting there. Like I, I asked a bunch of questions to Faraz and his co founders, and and they felt that the AI technologies. Yes, it's been hard the last couple of years to do a natural language processing on the tax code. It's very complicated, but the technology's cut up and they can do a lot of work today. Maybe not all of it perfectly. They can actually handle most of the mainstream stuff easily today. I'm not going to tell you the story about how I forgot to file an expense in like March and then ended up paying three lay fees on my corporate card for it, even though it was an approved expense. Long story. It's a lot of fun. We're actually going to move on instead and talk about Lesson B, which is a startup that I'm very, very excited about because they're working with everything from physical fitness to mental health, it looks like, Tosh. And that's a really wide range of stuff. So tell us about that. Yeah. So Lesson B is kind of earlier than we usually talk about startups. So they've raised... 920,000 in financing, and it's founded by Reva McPollum. Lesson B is a health class curriculum provider that basically installs into K through 12 school districts. And their main focus is trying to express a diverse set of health experiences that kids go through. I don't know about you guys, but growing up in Jersey, there's definitely a focus on like abstinence only sex um, as like the core metric. It's still getting funded today. And Lesson B is basically trying to like talk about sexual orientation more, talking about like how diversity fits into all of these health topics in a way that it hasn't. So I was very excited to see it. I think it's great. My parents were not great on this point. My school was not great on this point. Uh, I do grow up a lot and learn that calling things gay wasn't great because we didn't really talk about gay people growing up. I mean, I just, it's amazing how 20, 30 years ago, it feels like the stone ages and that kids today might kids these days, I guess will have access to not only just more tooling and more education, but also a, a more diverse set of it. It makes me really, really excited. You'll still have religious conservative holdouts who don't want to talk about sex because it's gross, but like, you know, on the whole, reading through this post that you wrote about the, the company Tosh made me very encouraged. And I like to feel um, uplifted, especially after a week of weird news. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the the founder has a really compelling story that I'll briefly dive into. It's just when, when she was growing up, she was the successful kid. So she said that being successful in school in a traditional school setting can kind of mean you suffer in silence sometimes. Like she was being called a tomboy, but didn't know why she felt frustrated by it and didn't have the words around it. 
Um, so I think it also taps into this idea that it's like people who don't know that they can even have questions. That's why education is so important for me to cover, I feel like, because it's anything that's trying to help answer questions that kids don't know they have is like timeless technology that we need, one. And two, it's an affordable piece of technology. Like I think that um, less than $10 per student per year, um, sorry, $8 per learner annually or $16 um, per learner, depending on the course. So it is cheaper for a reason. And I, I'm cheering for it. She's eyeing 1 million in financing, hopefully by the end of the month. Yeah, I, I hope, going back to what we said earlier about the fitness boom and coronavirus and all staying home and all that, I, I think the ed tech uh, boom is here to stay as well. I, I mean, I, not not exactly as it currently is with everyone stuck at home in a living room next to a, an iPad running Zoom, but like I think the tooling that we need is being built and will eventually allow for more of this sort of thing to happen. Listen, we are going long today because there's so much to do, so we're going to have to compress this next topic into just about one minute. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, Discord has raised $100 million at a $3.5 billion valuation, and uh, really quick takes. I think this is cool and neat. Danny, I'm curious if you think they have the revenue share and Tosh, I'm curious if you think uh, it's going to maintain its kind of prominence in the tech world. So let's go do that really quick. Danny, first, talk about money. I have no idea. I, have there ever been numbers released by the company on its revenues? I don't think there's any data. So I, I have no opinion whatsoever. Uh, it's actually shocking to me. I mean, among the major companies, right? Slack has is a you know traded company. We know a lot of the other numbers for social media, like Discord. We know they have 100 million active users, according to the company. They said they had 4 billion minutes in conversation, which I have no idea exactly what that is. <laughs> That's non-gap revenue. That's non-gap revenue. But we don't know anything about the metrics here. And it's a really, unlike Slack and some of the other businesses, it is really weird, right? In terms of a revenue model, it's mostly consumer. It doesn't seem to really be ad-driven. It doesn't look like a place where you could make it ad-driven. So it, to me, it's actually really complicated to understand how they make money and how that translates from the active users to revenue. So I have no idea. Okay, Tosh, cultural relevance and the importance of it in the market. I always thought of Discord as Reddit, but more face-to-face -face or vulnerable. So I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it has very fair critiques around content moderation, but I think like we definitely need and, and people are coming to it for a reason right now. So I don't think it's going anywhere. I think that I would be excited to see an exit. I don't know if that's like in the next year, next two years. What about you? What do you think? I think it's almost too expensive now to be bought by most people. Uh, and by the way, by, by not going anywhere, you mean it's not going to leave versus it's not going to end up being popular, right? Because that phrase can be used either way. I, I was going to say, it's not going to end up becoming like uncool. It's like, it's going to be part of our culture, I think. It's yes. not going to, you know, somehow become irrelevant overnight. Yeah. Well, I think ByteDance has taught us that cultural relevancy can turn into material revenues and profits. So hopefully Discord will end up on the right side of that coin versus on the uh, on the Reddit side of it, which is to say always losing money and always still culturally relevant. Okay, quickly, before we go, Tosh, uh, you wrote a piece about a technology mafia, and we would be remiss if we did not talk about that because the famous PayPal mafia is still bedeviling us to this day. And there have been a number of other mafias. I've heard about the Coinbase mafia, for example. Uh, there's the TechCrunch mafia, which is just a bunch of bitter people around the United States. <laughs> um, but I'm curious, why is Contrary Capital uh, trying to find the uh, the next tech mafia? You also can't forget the Crunchbase News mafia, who yeah, is well, killing it at all times. 50% of the people on the show are, are Crunchbase mafia, so there you go. <laughs> um, well, for people who don't know what mafias are <laughs> that we're referencing, it's basically the idea that early employees at companies leave the company, start their own things, join other companies, and become like just part of this broader ecosystem and are leading the charge. I think the other day, one of my friends on Twitter was saying like, I'm ready for the Glossier Mafia to start becoming a thing. Oh, People love it because it's like fun to see movement and track it through successful ideas. Like if you're good at your job, you probably aren't good at just what you're doing at the moment. People so, love dynasties. Exactly. So Contrary Capital, which is like a part, 
venture firm that focuses on students and part accelerator that also focuses on students is kind of not necessarily pivoting, but is adding a new focus that they think will be their future, the majority of their future, which is investing in early career folks um, early on before they even have an idea to start a company and then having reserved capital for when they want to eventually do their own thing. I think it's smart for a variety of reasons. One being like, if there are more layoffs, all these smart people are going to have time on their hands to create companies. So that's an optimistic way of looking at the layoffs. Um, And then also, yeah, I mean, I just think that the fact that they're getting these people in and mentoring them early is, is a good way of deal flow. It's smart. It's not like pioneering something that's never been done before, but it's smart. And uh, if I recall, there's some interesting diversity metrics out of uh, who they're looking at. I think it was like 40% female, something like that. Yeah. So they rely on a lot of their intel from a venture partner network, which are just people in schools and all over the country. The network is diverse. So the idea being that if you have diverse people, they're going to recommend and find other diverse people. It's 40% female and 60% non-white. And there's roughly 100 venture partners kind of dispersed throughout the country. And I was talking to the founder of Contrary, Eric, and he was saying that they're going to grow that partner network along with this new arm. They also hired Triple Byte's previous head of talent to lead the arm. So I thought that was kind of like a little bit of a flex that I was like, I'll have that in. That's fun. <laughs> the uh, I was surprised this week to learn a little bit more about the number of uh, kind of like younger VC firms like Rough Draft Ventures, Contrary Capital. Um, there's a lot more students involved in VC than I knew. And uh, I learned about that by covering um, Envision, which is a new accelerator that some students have spun up in the last couple of weeks um, that just kind of closed apps for its first class. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, but fascinating. I feel like we always end up talking to the most senior partners, which sounds cool, but kind of isn't. Uh, and we don't get to talk to the people that are the most exciting, which are the the younger people with the biggest ideas and the most to prove because they don't have, you know, 50 million in the bank. They have $50 in the bank and therefore they're a bit more um, hungry and maybe even risk oriented. Now, Ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of main fair equity for today. But because we love Danny with a with a virulent passion, and because we still hate luck and coffee with every strand of our hearts, it is time to pause and give Danny Crichton his due. It is luckin' time. It is luckin' time. So we talk, talked about lemonade, which is up 140 percent, and and luckin's the complete opposite. Luckin' coffee is like down 140 percent. And if you're asking how that works, well, you haven't learned how uh, Chinese uh, accounting works. But uh, Luck & Coffee is having a lot of fun issues. They have a shareholders meeting this weekend. For, for those who don't know, the chairman of the board is uh, basically firing the board. The board is firing the chairman. We don't actually know what's going to happen next. I believe the, the firing of the chairman was supposed to happen today. The shareholders meeting to fire the board is this weekend. And uh, Luck & is basically worth it right now. Yesterday, or I'm sorry, on Wednesday, the company announced that it has confirmed the $300 million of um, alleged fraud that it did overstate on its books, roughly uh, 50 to $75 million a quarter for four quarters when it was on the public markets and traded on NASDAQ. And the company is being delisted. So officially, NASDAQ will delist it, I believe, on July uh, 13th, if I'm doing it from memory properly. So this is this whole story. I mean, this was the fastest growing startup of all time. It was a huge story that we covered on equity quite heavily. And we are now seeing the vinyl, final, final pieces put together. Uh, and it's not a happy one. Two things about that. Danny was referring to um, accounting controls for Chinese-based companies, not anything bad about people from China, to be incredibly clear. Uh, so don't don't come at us with that. We're just pointing out there's been a number of fraudulent issues with China-based companies listed in the United States. This is the second wave of them, by the way. Go back in time, there's more. And uh, two, I was a big Lance Armstrong fan growing up. I watched the Tour de France. I bought his autobiography. I had books about that guy. 
I didn't really cycle that much, but I, I did get the merit badge. But like, you know, I thought Lance was, was just the shit because he like got kicked by life and he got up and he just, you know, pushed through the wall. And then it turned out he was a fucking cheater. And I just got to say, fuck that guy. And that's how I feel about Luckin. They were like, we're so cool. Look at us. We're different. We're going to blow up. We're going to grow a thousand percent a day. And it turns out they were lying. And we don't like liars on equity. And we that's thought we work was as bad as it was going to get, but it's just gotten so bad. So much more <laughs> no. worse. <laughs> we'll, we'll do a round robin of which is the best fraud of the last year. <laughs> was WeWork technically a fraud? There's that lawsuit going on. Yeah, have you guys seen that? I have not. I'm so happy yeah. I haven't. That's that's a story for another day. Listen, we have gone on long enough. Um, I'm Alex. Danny's here. Tasha's here. And from the Equity Crew, have a really lovely holiday weekend here in the States. And if you're not in the States, have a lovely non-holiday weekend. All right. Bye.